good. Have you ever noticed that all the students who come, they're all females? <laughs> Not bad if my younger sons had a Sunday school class. They, their students would all be males. <laughs> That's very interesting. Well, it's good to have water here. Uh, this past Friday, I spoke at the Global Proclamation Academy, which was held on the campus of Dallas Seminary. And uh, this is a three-week course for pastors. These are the leading pastors in their nation. Young guys, usually about 25 and younger. Some are maybe 30. But uh, these are the upcoming pastors in their nations from 25 different nations of the world. And uh, I finished up the three-week session, and my topic was on evangelism. And so Dr. Ramesh Richard, who is the director of this, always wants the gospel to be the last thing that they go away with. So they'll hear a clear explanation of the gospel. And it was a great time. Uh, our own Ed Yates, deacon at the church, is on the board of this organization. And uh, it's just a tremendous ministry. Those young men came to First Baptist last, was last week or two weeks ago. They came to First Baptist. They brought all of the young pastors from all around the world to First Baptist. That was the day that the pastor was asking for money. It was very interesting. <laughs> uh, so they didn't get to hear the kind of message that we heard today, which, by the way, was a great message, wasn't it? Amen. Uh, the only thing I disagreed with him on, and I tell him this if he were standing right here, was that he, you know, his story, if you didn't hear it, he told the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, and how they were so different, and they both went to the temple and prayed. And he said, that would be like a preacher today. He tried to give us an analogy of the distance between a Pharisee and a tax collector. He says the distance would be like a preacher today and a prostitute praying. And I thought, well, that's not much difference. <laughs> <laughs> can't distinguish between them sometimes, not the way So other than that, it was a great message. <laughs> well, anyway, we are uh, in Luke chapter 9, so take your Bibles. Turn to Luke chapter 9, and we're going to finish this chapter. Last week, we saw four different scenes dealing with the apostles' failures. Remember, they couldn't understand certain things, they failed to cast out demons and so forth. And now we come to what is called the turning point in Luke's Gospel. In a sense, this is uh, the most important passage in Luke's Gospel. Uh, in that it's, it is a pivot point. In Bible study, when you're studying books of the Bible, for example Luke, one of the things that you're hunting for is, in that book is the pivot point. The point where the whole story just turns, like on a dime. And that's what we have right here. Up through chapter 9 and verse 50, we have Jesus' ministry in Galilee. Now, there's a turning point. And look at verse 51. Notice what it says. Now, it came to pass... When the time had come for him to be received up, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. So this begins a turning point from him turning away from his Galilean ministry, and now he's heading toward Jerusalem. So that's a pivot point. Now I want you to notice what it says in verse 51. 
it says, when it was time for him to be received up. What in the world does that mean? Received up. Well, if you can read commentators and you can read all kinds of opinions, some say it means when he was, he was ready to be received up to heaven, but I don't think that's what Luke's talking about. I think he's talking about it was time for him to die. It was time for him to be lifted up on the cross. And because that time was nearing, he sets his face toward Jerusalem. Notice that phrase right there, sets his face. Do you see that? That speaks of determination. Term, determination. Uh, why does he set his face? Because it was time. His time had come for him to go to Jerusalem. He has a sense of God's timing that his death is imminent and he needs to get to Jerusalem because that's where it's going to happen. So he's determined and he sets his face and he's going to go there knowing that he's going to die. He's going to be lifted up. Now, if I knew that if I went back to Rockwall today, where I live, that I was going to die, I would set my face in every other direction rather than Rockwall, wouldn't you? But Jesus has such a divine sense of mission that that's exactly what he does. Now, look in verse 52. And he sent ministers before his face, and as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. To prepare what for him? Probably lodging. This is Jesus' advanced team. And so he's going to go from Galilee, which is up here, to Jerusalem, which is down here. And right in the middle is Samaria. And so he sends this advance team from Galilee down into Samaria to prepare for lodging and all the, the things that are going to be necessary when they get there. And that's really important to understand because they need to make preparation because the Samaritans did not like Galilean pilgrims coming through their territory to get to Jerusalem. That's like, let's say a motorcycle gang wants to get from city A to city C, and they have to come through your city. You wouldn't like that, because maybe they block the traffic, maybe they fill up the restaurants, or whatever the situation is. Maybe it's, maybe it's thousands of them going to a convention, and they always stop at your city every year, and it drives you crazy. And the Samaritans did not like Galilean pilgrims passing through the region to go to Jerusalem. And that's because the, the Jews and the Samaritans were antagonistic toward each other. The Jews considered the Samaritans apostates. They considered them half-Jews, not purist. The Jews, many years before, and we don't need to go into the whole history, uh, married uh, Gentiles and they settled in the Samaritan area, and they worshipped on Mount Gerizim. Remember when Jesus talked to the woman at the well in Samaria, and she said, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and yours worshipped on that mountain. They worshipped on Mount Gerizim, and the Jews said, Hey, there's only one place to worship. That's the Holy Mount. That's the temple. That's where God dwells. And so there was this animosity, and the Jews would come down from Galilee, down to Jerusalem, to worship in the wrong temple far as the Samaritans were concerned, and they would always stop in Samaria, and they didn't like them. So Jesus has to send a team ahead, in a sense, 
to prepare. Oftentimes, Jews would bypass Samaria. They would go through Jordan, and they would do a sort of a, an end run around Samaria because they knew that the Samaritans didn't like them. But Jesus is going to go through Samaria. Now, look what else it says there in verse 53. Verse 53. But, watch this, but they did not receive him. That means they didn't welcome him. When Jesus got there, they had prepared, tried to find a place for Jesus. When he gets there, the Samaritans don't welcome him. They couldn't find lodging. They couldn't find a place for them to eat. Why didn't they welcome him? Verse 53. Because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. They saw him as a religious pilgrim stopping by. They didn't want this in their country. So that's what we have here. Now it's very interesting. If you've noticed, you've seen the word face in verse 51. You see the word face in verse 52. And in verse 53, you see the word face. Some of you remember the movie, The Three Faces of Eve? Those are the three faces of Jesus. And uh, you could actually title each one of those faces. The first face, you could call it a determinative face. So he was determined to get to Jerusalem. You could do all that. And so, by the way, there's a fourth face over in chapter 10 and verse 1. Look at this. And after these things, the Lord appointed some of the others also, and he sent them two by two, before his what? Face. You see that? So this face is a theme here which talks about Jesus' determination. He's determined to get to Jerusalem, and he's sending advanced teams out to prepare the way for him to get there safely because he has a divine destiny. Now look back at verse 54. Verse 54. And when his disciples, James, now remember the people rejected Jesus, didn't welcome him, when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? They rejected Jesus? Let's call fire down and let's send judgment. Is that what you want us to do, Jesus? Um... These guys weren't called the sons of thunder for nothing. This is James. Hey, they're not joking. You know, if I said, you want, hey, Gene, let's call fire down. Yeah. Well, I know fire's not going to come down. These guys aren't joking. They're dead serious. They're saying, you just give the word. We'll, we'll call fire down. And God will send fire down and judge these people for rejecting you, Jesus. And at the end of verse 54, they, they have a biblical basis for it. Look what it says. Just as Elijah did. Now, where did Elijah do that? Now, I'm going to show you something. Put your marker here, and I want you to go back to 2 Kings. Okay, 2 Kings. Because they claim to have biblical precedents for calling judgment down upon the Samaritans. Now, if you look at... 2 Kings chapter 1. 2 Kings chapter 1. And look at verse 1. 2 Kings chapter 1 and verse 1. Now 
And here's what it says. Moab rebelled against Israel after the death of Ahab. And Ahaziah fell through the lattice of his upper room in where? Samaria. Samaria. Now this is very important. And he was injured. So he sent his messengers and he said, Go inquire of Baal, Zabab, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover from this injury. So here, instead of this leader inquiring of God whether he would be healed, he sends messengers to require to inquire of Baal. He asks Baal if he'll be healed. And so, without going into the whole story, Elijah rebukes it. What are you doing going to some false god asking him for help? See? Now look at verse 9. Then the king sent to him, to Elijah, a captain of 50 with his 50 men. And so he went up to him. And there he was sitting on the top of the hill, and he spoke to him. Man of God, the king has said, come down. So we see the captain with his army and his 50 men coming to Elijah. Elijah's rebuked the king. He says, come down. You know, one of those situations. Now look at verse 12. So Elijah answered and said to them, if I'm a man of God, let fire come down. That's what's going to come down. Let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50 men. And the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. Now, so here's what we have. We have a situation in Samaria where the people rejected God's representative, Elijah. And so Elijah calls fire down, judgment. So what do you have? Jesus coming through Samaria to reject God's messenger? James and John says, give us the word, we'll call fire down. See, so they have biblical precedence. They're dead serious about this. They think it could happen. Okay? Now, I want you to put a pencil or something right there in Kings, because I'm going to come back to Kings a little bit later. Okay? And that way you'll be able to find it very quickly. So, what did Jesus say to do if you went into a town and they didn't welcome you? What did he say that you should do? Dust off your feet. Yeah, dust off your feet. Uh, they have a better idea. <laughs> How about fire coming down and judging? See? Uh, these guys, James and John, I'm convinced, are intoxicated with power. <clears throat> these are the two whose mother came and said, uh, when you come into your kingdom, can uh, James sit at your right and John sit at your left? We want to be the right-hand man, the left-hand man. We want to have the positions of authority, and I think they're intoxicated with their, their importance. Uh, the pastor talked about that today, people who are intoxicated with their importance, they're prideful. And so as a result of that, uh, James and John misinterpret Jesus' ministry entirely. Uh, they think they're great. Should we call fire to come down? The thing that amazes me, they couldn't cast a demon out last week. <laughs> How do they expect fire to come down? You know, this is, it's, it's hilarious. I think that Luke's readers, when they read this, have to be laughing through this. So uh, look what happens in verse 55. So Jesus turned and he rebuked them. Now, it doesn't tell us much of what he said. But wouldn't you like to hear that? I bet you Jesus would have said, hey, last week you couldn't cast out a demon. I think he would have said something like that. That would have been a rebuke. But he rebukes them. 
Now, you know from Luke's gospel, we've been in it for several months now, that that word rebuke is a word that Jesus uses against whom? Satan, the devils, the demons. And he uses the same word against his, his apostles in this situation because they are basically being used by Satan. And so he rebukes them. He, it says he rebuked them. He says, you, look at the end of verse 55, you do not know the manner of spirit you are of. He's basically saying you're being used by the wrong spirit. You're not following the spirit of God. See? Because the Son of Man did not come to, look, destroy men's lives, but to save them. See, Jesus' goal when he, his, at his first coming was not judgment. The Jews thought that when Messiah came, he would judge the world and set up God's kingdom. But that's not Jesus' goal for his first coming. His goal was not judgment. What's his goal? Salvation. Deliverance. Forgiveness. See, in his first coming, he's not bringing the day of judgment. He's bringing a day of jubilee. Remember that from Luke chapter 4? It's a day when he sets the prisoners free. It's a day of forgiveness. It's a day of restoration. It's a day of salvation. And so he says to them, you know, you don't know what you're talking about. You don't know what manner of spirit you are of. The Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. It's not judgment, it's jubilee. And even when he hangs from the cross, he doesn't judge those who condemn him. What does he say? Father, forgive them. This is where the Jews missed the whole meaning of what Jesus was about. They thought he was going to overthrow the government with force. The fire of God was going to come down. They were going to be condemned. And he was going to set up the kingdom. In reality, he came to die for people's sins and offer forgiveness. So that's very interesting, isn't it? Now look at, ver at the end of verse 56. And so they went to another village. Now it happened as they journeyed on the road, meaning down towards Jerusalem, that someone said to him, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. Now this is one of the first, this is one of three vignettes on discipleship. In this first situation, it says, as they're on the road, somebody said, Lord, I'll follow you wherever you go. Now, this is a volunteer. You're going to see something very interesting. This is a man who volunteers. Now, what's happened when Jesus went to Samaria? He got what? Rejected. So, it could be the next town he ends up in, he'll be what? Rejected. Might get beaten. And here's a guy that says, Lord, I'll go wherever you want me to go. I'll follow you. And so he's volunteering, and he's probably volunteering for full-time ministry, in a sense, to be a traveling preacher. Now, if somebody came up to me, if I were preaching in First Baptist Church, and I gave an invitation, and maybe my invitation was something like this. Uh, and maybe God's calling you to ministry, and if that's the case, you come up and say, I'm going to surrender my life to ministry. 
And somebody came up and did that, I would say, praise the Lord, hallelujah, you know, let's get together for lunch next week, wouldn't I? Well, here's a guy who says, I volunteer to follow you wherever, I'm, I'm willing to leave my business, just pack up right now and start following you, okay? And so Jesus says, well, great, hallelujah, right? Verse 58, Jesus said to him, well, foxes have holes, see, and birds have, of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He certainly didn't have a place to lay his head in Samaria, did he? And when it talks about no place to lay his head, it means no permanent place to lay his head. No permanent place to lay his head. Because foxes can always go back to their holes, and that's where they live. That's their dwelling. And birds have nests for the season, and that's their dwelling. But the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He doesn't have a permanent dwelling. See? He is a traveling preacher. And therefore, he's dependent 100% on hospitality. If he doesn't receive the hospitality, he has no place to lay his head. It's only when he receives hospitality will he have a place to lay his head that night, or for two nights, or maybe three nights. And we do know that Jesus lays his head down on, the, on a pillow in Peter's mother-in-law's house. We know he hangs out there sometimes. And we know that he stays overnight at Mary and Martha and Lazarus' house. But that's not a permanent place. He has no permanent place to lay his head. His mother has rejected him. His brothers have rejected him. They think he belongs in the mental institution. You remember that. They want to take him away. They want to pat him on the back and say, oh, you know, you'll get over this. Uh, he has no place to lay his head. So instead of letting this man know uh, or welcoming this man, he makes it hard for the guy. The guy said, wherever. And Jesus wants to find out, well, you know wherever is, where it might be. It might be we don't have any place to sleep tonight. And in the wintertime, in the Middle East, it can snow. We might be out in the snow. We might freeze that. We might be out in the rain. We might be out with the wild animals. What he's doing, he's basically telling this man, before you say wherever or whatever, you better count the cost. And think about whatever or wherever what they mean. And so Jesus makes it very difficult because he doesn't have any place to lay his head. He didn't have a place to lay his head when he was born. Think about that. There was no room for him in the inn. Where, where did he lay his head that night? He had a, in a stall. And his mother put him in a feed trough which is about as dirty as you can get. I would never put one of my children in an animal feed trough. Then, King Herod wanted to kill all the infants, and guess what? They couldn't stay there. They had to go to Egypt. He had to leave. He was born in Bethlehem. He had to leave Jerusalem under the age of two. He had to stay in Egypt for a couple of years until Herod died. So this has been Jesus' life. From the beginning, and now it's going to end that way. So that's vignette number one. Okay, now let's look at the second story. Look at verse 59. Then he said to another, Follow me. 
Now, in this case, Jesus invites somebody to follow him. The first time, it was a volunteer. Notice the common denominator. Follow. Follow. Okay? Jesus has his face set towards something. He's determined to get there. Through hook or crook. And it means his death when he gets there. If you're going to follow him, guess where that's going to end up? It's going to end up on a cross. And you better think twice before you're associated with him. Because when Rome puts a person on the cross, and they did it, it was an unbelievable situation. In their highway system, they could have, you know, 20 or 30 different crosses planted in the ground. And criminals, people whom they considered rebels, hanging on those crosses, and it was a gruesome death. And they did that so when pilgrims and travelers came by and they saw those people hanging on a cross, like an animal on a hook, meat hook, it would drive the fear of Caesar into them and they would never think of rebelling themselves. Jesus said, that's where I'm going to end up. And now, he calls somebody to follow him. Follow him all the way to the cross. If he called you that way, he said, come on, follow me. You might want to know where he's going before you answered yes. So he says, follow me. So Jesus gives the invitation. He gives the call. Look at the middle of verse 59. But the young man said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Now, he didn't say he wouldn't follow him. He said, yes, but. So there's a yes, but. You always have to watch out when there's a yes, but. Yes, but, let me go bury my father. Well, what's wrong with burying, burying your father? There's nothing wrong with that. That seems reasonable, doesn't it? There's been a lot of crazy explanations about what this means. Let me go bury my father. But uh, I think that's a reasonable request. Let me go bury my father. Look what Jesus said. He said, let the dead bury the dead. But you, go and preach the kingdom of God. Now what kind of answer is that? What's wrong with asking permission to bury your father first? And what kind of seemingly crazy answer is this? Well, let the dead bury the dead. You go and preach the gospel. In other words, no, you can't bury your father. You're going to follow me. You have to come right now. See, I've got my face set towards Jerusalem, and I'm leaving today. You can't bury your father. That doesn't seem to be real reasonable. I think if I were Jesus, I would have said, well, bury your father and catch up with me tomorrow. You know, or you, know, you can catch up with me in a certain town. Day three will be over here. That seems reasonable. This doesn't seem reasonable. But Jesus is never reasonable, according to human reason. Now, what's happening here, I think that Jesus is basically saying that all of our allegiances to our family must yield to our allegiance for Christ and his kingdom. Now, when you're talking about burial, Jews had two burials when someone died. The first burial took place within 24 hours. Jews still do that today, don't they? They bury their dead very quickly. They don't embalm their dead. They bury their dead quickly. That's the first burial within 24 hours. The second burial takes place, at least in Bible times, not now, one year later. One year later. 
when the body had totally decomposed and all that was left was the bones. And then you would go to the tomb and you would collect the bones and you would put the bones in a bone box. An ossuary. We just heard about a bone box, supposedly of James, that was discovered about three months ago. The James, the brother of Jesus, on the box. And you would collect those bones and you would put them in a bone box and then you would bury the bone box that was 12 months later. And with that, the mourning period of one year came to an end. Now we do not know which burial this is. Could be his father had died and he needed to bury him within 24 hours. More than likely, this guy was in a state of mourning. And he had to wait to the end of that year morning when they buried the bones. And so he said, I want to follow you, but you need to let me bury my father, who's dead. And Jesus says, let the dead bury the dead. Now what kind of answer is that? Let the dead bury the dead. Now, you've, if you don't understand what's happening with the kingdom of God and all this kind of stuff, you'll come up with all kinds of crazy answers. You see, what the Jews believed was this. When the Messiah came, there'd be the end of one age. The world and all that was in it would pass away. It was dying. It would pass away. And the Messiah would come and a new age would begin. That's how they thought it would happen. And Jesus takes that concept and he says, people who are not in the kingdom, that are not part of the new age, are part of the old world that is passing away. When someone dies, we said they pass away. This world as we know it, and all that is in it, John says, is passing away. It's dead. It just hasn't taken its last breath yet. And it will finally give way to the, fulfill, to, to the fullness of the kingdom, which started when Jesus came. So this old world's passing away, and the kingdom is starting to be established. It's inaugurated. And one day it'll be in its fullness and this world will pass away when the Lord returns. And so if you're part of this old world that's passing away, that means right now you're passing away. And you're dead. You're a dead man walking. And he says, let people of this world that are passing away bury the dead who've already passed away. You need to be part of the new age. The kingdom of God. And you need to leave this old world and you need to step into the kingdom of God right now. And that's why he says in verse 60, let the dead bury the dead, but you go and preach what? A new age. The kingdom of God. You be part of the kingdom of God. Now we come to the third story. Verse 61. And another said, also, Lord, I will follow you. Oh, another volunteer. Another volunteer. 
Same words, though, follow. You see that? I'll follow you. This is a volunteer. Now, the first volunteer said, wherever, wherever. No stipulation. And Jesus gave him stipulations. Made it hard for him. Now we have the second volunteer, and he says, I'll follow you, but stipulation. Okay, what are they? Here it is. Verse 61. Lord, I'll follow you, but let me go first and bid farewell. Bid them farewell who are at my house. But Jesus said, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. So here's a guy who says, volunteers, I'll go with you, but I need to go at least give my mom a kiss goodbye. Give my dad a hug. Pat my little brothers and sisters on the head. Tell them to be good kids. I have a mission I have to go on. That seems reasonable. And what doesn't seem reasonable is Jesus' answer. Which is what? No one, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. In other words, no, you can't do that. Either you're with me or you're against me. Now, I know that if we have a war going on right now in Iraq, and we have soldiers going to Iraq, and we see those departures at the air, you know, maybe the, the soldiers are ready to get onto a, a plane, and there are their families, and guess what they do to their families before they get on the plane and they ship out? They give them a big hug. They kiss them goodbye before they go on that mission. And if the United States government told one of our soldiers, you can't kiss your wife goodbye, you can't kiss your mom goodbye, you can't give your dad a hug, and you can't pat, pat your brothers and sisters on the head, there'd be outrage against our government, wouldn't we? We wouldn't put up with that nonsense if these people are going to serve our nation at least they should be allowed to give their parents a kiss goodbye. What kind of answer is this? See, Jesus always surprises us. Every time we think we've got him figured out, we realize that we're not quite thinking on the same level as Jesus. Now, let me show you something. I told you to keep your hand in Kings, didn't I? So go back to Kings. And this time I want you to go back to 1 Kings, okay? You were in 2 Kings. Go back to 1 Kings. In fact, you're probably going to be real close to that same page. And go back to 1 Kings, verse 19. Now, when this young man says, 1 Kings, chapter 19. Did I say it wrong? 1 Kings, chapter 19. When this young man says, Lord, I'm going to follow you, but... You know, let me bid my family good farewell. You know, he had a biblical basis for doing that. He had a biblical basis for doing that. It's not like he was asking for something outlandish. First Kings chapter 19, and look at verse 19, verse 20. In verse 19, let's look at verse 19, something like that, let's see. This is Elisha follows Elijah, the beginning of verse 19. My Bible actually has that title, Elisha follows Elijah. So he departed from there, and he found Elisha, the son of Saphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen before him, and he was with the 12th. And then Elijah passed by him and threw his mantle on him. 
chose him to be his successor as the prophet. And he left his oxen and ran after Elijah. And he said, I'll follow you, but watch. Please let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And he said, go back again, for what have I done to you? So Elisha turned back from him, took a yoke of oxen, and slaughtered them, and boiled their flesh, using the oxen and the equipment, and gave it to the people, and they ate, and he arose, and he followed Elijah, and he became a servant. So he goes back, and he has a meal with his family, does all this, then he follows. Even Elijah the prophet allowed Elisha, before he followed him, to go back and at least eat a meal with his family. And Jesus won't do this. What's going on here? Jesus is much more strict. And again, it's the same situation. It's because Jesus says that if your family is lost, and this doesn't, it sounds harsh, but it's, he's not trying to make it harsh. It's that there are people that are part of a world that's passing away. And the kingdom is a world, a new world that's coming in. And you need to align yourself with the new world. You don't want to be attached to the old world. Because once you leave, once you leave that family behind, in fact, he says this. He even goes further than that. He says, if you go back and you kiss your mom and dad before you follow me, and this is a volunteer, he says, you're not even fit for the kingdom. Think about that. He says, you're not even, you're not even qualified for the kingdom. If you go back and kiss your mama, then you're a mama's boy, you're not a Jesus boy, in a sense. You're not even qualified for the kingdom. Because, I'm convinced, because this present world's passing away and you don't want to be aligned with it and that's not where you want your affections to be. You want your affections to be on the kingdom of God. We need to have our affections on heaven above. You see, you can't be emotionally attached to the old life. Because when things get tough out there and there's no place to lay your head or they beat you up, or they threaten to put you on the cross, guess where you'll end up? Back at Mama's house. If you're emotionally attached to that which was in the past, and you move forward with Christ, and things get rough, guess what you'll do? You'll bolt, and you'll run. Does Paul say that happened to people that he knew? He says, yes, Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. Paul says, I need volunteers. Demas says, I'll volunteer. Let me go kiss my mama first. Paul says, okay. And mama says, let's have a big meal. Let's have a feast before you. And now he goes with Paul after the big feast. And things get rough and there's no meals. And he says, I think I'll go back to my mama's. <laughs> I like this present world. 
And Paul has a negative word against Demas. Because when things get rough, if your emotional attachments are with this present world, which is simply epitomized by the family, then you will abandon the mission. You'll turn your back on the kingdom. And you go back into the present world, which is passing away. Death. You're not fit for the kingdom. Pretty interesting, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Now Luke puts this. So here's the question. In light of this, do we qualify? <laughs> Are any of us in this room uh, fit for the kingdom of God? <clears throat> now I can make it easy and say each one of these we're going to go into full-time ministry. We can make this just for full-time ministry. To be a full-time ministry, you need to be willing to turn your back on everything. Uh, and that would be great if Jesus said, if you go back and kiss your mama, you're not qualified for a full-time ministry. But he didn't say that, did he? What did he say? Not fit for what? Kingdom of God. So evidently this has some sort of universal application. So uh, that's why I'm convinced that when we come to Christ, and he calls us and says, come and follow me. Whether it's in full-time ministry or whether it's just as a disciple of Christ. It's really important for us to count the cost up front. Up front. And you might as well just say, to follow Christ means I'm dead to the world and I'm following Jesus. And the world may even be angry at me and put me to death because I'm following Jesus. But... No matter what the cost, I'm going to follow Jesus. You never want to follow Jesus and be out there and then suddenly realize how difficult it might be. Just like those 25 young pastors from around the world, places that you wouldn't even want to step into. Okay. And they're out there serving in the rough areas. You never want to be out there serving Christ and then say, uh-oh, if I knew it was going to be this hard... I wouldn't have done it in the first place. You need to count the cost up front because the kingdom of God, which represents eternal life, has precedence overall. Amen? We'll pick up a chapter 10 next week. Father, we thank you for your word. Help us to examine our own lives. Lord, we see how far short we fall. We see how far short we have clear understanding of the kingdom of God and the gospel of Christ and what it means to be a disciple. Oh, Lord, help us, even today, dedicate our life anew, having counted the cost. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Amen.